Rodney, what's happening, man? See this little eight-sided dice that I'm holding up that people who are listening to cannot see? That is not little. That is like the size of your hand. This is a large dodecahedron, I believe, is an eight-sided. I don't know. Whatever. No. Yeah. No. Oh, it's it's got to be an octa. octahedron. Yeah, maybe. Does it? We should look it up. I should have looked it up, but I for I, I mean, dodeca is would be twenty. Would be twenty. Right? Yeah. So this isn't about that. It's not. Well, it is now. It is. But <laughs> it wasn't. This little guy like tracks the time that I spend on things. Like each side has a different activity that I track in my life, and then how do you track it? It pairs to an app on my phone and on my computer, and it shows me. So, like, since we're talking right now, it's on more in common. So, it's just tracking the time. And then if I put it, I'm going to turn it off now. If I put it upright, it stops tracking. Oh, you just turn it. Oh. Yeah, just turn it to the side that I want to track. and To then, the thing that you're working on. Yep. So. Oh, that's fascinating. I'll do one of those report backs to see how I'm spending my time. And it turns out I'm spending a lot of time looking at the floor (laughs) i don't know we'll see we'll see in a we'll see in a couple of months well let's check it out Uh, welcome back to the morning comic podcast i am keith your co-host with my man rodney rodney what's going on with you today man I'm I'm feeling good. It's been a hard week, but good, about to get into a good weekend. And the end of the week has been great. So thank you for asking. I want to talk to you all about compassion because Keith and I are anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. We care a lot about compassion. We think it's, we know it's very important and we know that it can do good things for the world. What you're about to hear in this fantastic conversation with Ben and Fitz is that compassion is selflessness. It is seeing through another's eyes. And going from not understanding or using compassion to using it was a lot like going from black and white to color for one of these gentlemen. So Keith, this conversation with Ben and Fitz, what do we get into? What do we talk about? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, it's really about conversation tip as always, but getting into the space of why culture matters, right? And coming from two middle-aged white men, who are spearheading the, who have spearheaded that charge at Google. It's it's a really good in-depth conversation that traverses a few things. Why would someone listen though, Rodney? That's the question. So we got into all of that that Keith just mentioned. We talked about white dudes not knowing when to shut up in a corporate space. We talked about playing life on easy mode as a white dude. One of the most interesting things for me and maybe interesting for others is like the answer to, as to why for them. And it's the moral imperative. It's the right thing to do. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. But it's the right thing to do. And these two have been friends for a very long time, similar to Keith and I, longer than us two. And their rapport and their ability to deliver a message is fantastic. I highly recommend their book, Debugging Teams. And just going to leave it and say, let's get into it. Well, before we do, make sure you check everything out, moreincommonent.com. Give us a like, give us a share. If you really are about this compassionate life, it is an incredibly compassionate act to give us a like, 
leave us a review and tell your friends about us so that we can continue to spread the word. And, you know, if you have a company and you're trying to build up your culture, you know, check out our empty cup series and our consulting on our webpage, moreincommonent.com. We'll get to it. And, and I still, I still screw up. I still screw up all the time. Like I make mistakes. I say the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing. I miss something quite obvious, but the superpower that I have now is a group of friends who know me and trust me, who will not hesitate to call me out on that. And when that happens, I don't dig in and be like, screw you. You know, like I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. I'm successful, blah, blah, blah. I stop. I'm like, hold on a second comes back to that humility, respect, and trust that Ben and I talk about a lot. Book we talk about a lot day to day. With those are the three fundamental pillars that, from my perspective, all interpersonal conflict comes from. And so, having that humility and the respect for someone else and the trust that they have have my best interests at heart is what helps me to continue to improving. It's a journey. It's not a destination. We're not done. Today we are with friends and co-authors Brian Fitzpatrick goes by Fitz, and Ben Collins Sussman, who goes by Ben Collins Sussman. Fitz is founder and CTO of Talk, and he started Google's Chicago engineering office in 2005. An open source contributor for over 13 years, Brian was the engineering manager for several Google products and is a member of the Apache Software Foundation, a former engineer at Apple and CollabNet, and a subversion developer. Ben is a co-founder and author of Subversion, a popular version control tool to help programmers collaborate. He's also co-authored the main O'Reilly manual for software. He's currently engineering site lead for Google's Chicago office, having joined Google in 2005 as one of the first two engineers in Chicago. He manages multiple teams working on Google search serving infrastructure. Together, they've collaborated on multiple talks and books regarding the social challenges of software development. They have given dozens of talks at conferences, many viewable on the YouTube, and authored a popular O'Reilly book on the subject, Debugging Teams, Better Productivity Through Collaboration, which is soon to be open sourced, and you can find it at debuggingteams.com. Fitz, Ben, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. Hi. So we normally start with a question that we ask everybody, but we got to hear about this story about the 20 side die during calls that fits. You have to start the show with. So um, I've run this small invitation only on conference for 13 years now called WordCamp here in Chicago, named after the airport, because why not? We have, we've had a problem over the years as we've grown as the, Conferences have become more diverse. We've had a problem with white dudes still don't know to shut the hell up. And so I asked two different people, one person two years, two, three years, I guess, and then one person last year to get up and try to give a little talk about this. And I asked this guy, Dan Shapiro, who I absolutely love and adore, to get up and give this very hard five-minute chat. I didn't tell him what to do. I just told him what the goal was. And he gave this brilliant talk. And he said, I want, he says, before you speak in a group of people, is that I want you to roll a a magical, imaginary 20-sided die in your head. And if, and only if, it comes up a natural 20, do you open your mouth? And that's just a way of just sort of realizing how often you're speaking and how much space you're taking up in the room. And then he had sent a task rabbit off to some poor store 
and had them fish through this massive aquarium full of dice for an hour to come up with several hundred 20-sided dice and, dice, and they gave one to everyone in the conference. And I still carry it around in my pocket with me every day as a reminder, just stop and listen. Well, that, that is a good tie-in straight to the first question, which I was actually going to put to Ben, but yeah. now that, I mean, you're rolling here, Fitz. <laughs> Uh, your tip to navigating difficult conversations was shut up and listen. Why is that your tip? That's a lesson I learned the hard way. Uh, I think I learned, Ben and I have talked a lot about this. I think I learned most things the hard way. I definitely, sure, tell me that's goes hot. I, I just got to know. I just got to know how hot it is. And I think for most of my younger career, I just would keep talking like I'm doing right now. But especially but you were, in fairness, asked directly. You were asked. <laughs> you were invited to speak. <laughs> hey, hey, Ben, um, can you answer that for me? What, that would be well, an odd interview. <laughs> How do I? I'm sorry. What was what was the exact question about difficult conversations? Is that what you said? Yeah, I was. I was kidding. Instead of oh, Fitz okay. rambling, him just I saying, mean, "Hey, Ben, can you answer that for me?" Instead, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I I just talked nonstop when I was younger and had a lot of anxiety um, and. I would talk in just out of nervousness, but I wouldn't learn anything. And I just learned to start listening to people. And I started learning a lot about other people's viewpoints, other people's trials and tribulations, things that I just didn't encounter because I'm playing life on easy mode. And so listening, I think, is the key. You know, Fitz, there's a, there's a new feature, I think, is it in Google Hangouts or something where, where it actually tells you what percentage of the meeting you've Ooh. been talking? It's pretty yes. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah that would be really really interesting it would be even better to have sentiment analysis added to that to see how much you're actually talking about yourself or something meaningful to Oof, the conversation ow. but <laughs> did what wow. you say relate a, to what was said prior <laughs> and like the the corporate the corporate world so ben you said find common ground actually you just said common ground because it was rapid fire and you were beholden to the truth uh, the true sentiment of the the exercise which i appreciate in a difficult conversation how do you aim to find common ground what does that look like my, my association there was thinking about that book crucial conversations which is pretty famous at this point and i think it's full of compassion right and so the, they talk in that book. I mean, I don't know how much you've talked about this on the show before, but right. But the, the thesis of the book is that crucial conversation is basically any times you're having, it's, it's a particular kind of hard conversation. It's when there's two people arguing, having a hard conversation, but basically uh, the stakes are very high and the emotions are very high. And when you have both those things at the same time, it's very dangerous, right? And so uh, it talks about strategies for navigating those kinds of conversations. And the, the main first strategy is finding common ground, which really just sort of relies on mutual empathy, right? Figuring out where do you intersect? What are you both trying to achieve? How much of that overlaps, right? And that, that requires compassion and, and empathy. And that's a starting point, right? And it's very compatible with Fitz's advice of just shut up and listen, right? Because <laughs> you, you can't have that empathy if you don't listen. <laughs> Right. I mean, you, I should argument that with saying you should you need to hear what the other person is saying. Because Ben, you and I had a talk with a certain engineer, you may remember, who's having a really hard time. And we pulled him in the Blues Brothers that day, the conference room name. And mm -hmm. yep. we, we said, look, you know, you don't have to necessarily do things that other people say. It doesn't mean someone tells you their opinion. It doesn't mean you have to do that. But just you have to let them know that you've heard it. 
And you have to acknowledge that you have thought about it and considered it. And 90% of the time, that's going to be enough for most people. People just want to be heard. Yeah. One of the um, biggest uh, piece of advice that I think we've heard in this is through our differences, we find our commonalities, right? And I think that speaks to that listen first mentality of hear what the other person is saying and just accept that it's different than yours. And in that you give them an opportunity to hear what you're saying. And through that, you will find that commonality, which allows you to move forward. Because if you're just constantly resisting at that difference, because you're trying to just be heard, Mm -hmm. like that's 90% of it. Like just hear what I'm saying. And if you're not, then I'm just going to escalate. And all I'm doing, all I anchor on is just (laughs) understand me, would you? (laughs) Like, And then you get nowhere. That's a life hack. Like if if you speaking to someone, regardless of what it is, and that you notice that they're repeating themselves, try using active listening to like repeat it back to them. Say, look, what I hear you saying is this, and try to put it in your own words. That because usually it just means you're just they don't think you're listening or hearing them, and they're just going to keep repeating themselves all day long. Like you know, I would like that's you just want to be heard. You just headed me off at the pass, but I was going to go into but what happens when it's it's broken down or it's that heated moment where you're activated and you're in an amygdala response, you're in a fight or flight response. And you're just like, I need you to hear me because I'm pissed. Or like, how do you get like, what, what do you use to get to listening? Or what do you use to get to common ground in those hot moments? Breathing. (laughs) Self-check your physiological response, right? Because I find it often gets in the way. Right. Yeah. If, if I'm in that case, I need to take a break. Usually uh, I'll, I'll call what my therapist would call a halt. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, call a halt and pick it up later. Hungry, angry, lonely. T- I love that. Mm. On the halt. I love that. And often I want to halt, but there are times where something is being required of me from either another party or a thing that is happening in front of me right now. And I can't. Or at least I feel like I can't. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe I feel like I can't step away. But how do you actually practically apply HALT? Or yeah, how do you apply it? That's a hard, that's a hard one. If you feel like you can't, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's an easy solution to that. Because that, that usually means that you're not in a position where you're aware of what's going on, of, of the feelings that you're having. Like that's, that's usually how I am. And, and I, I ride that horse and tends to end poorly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I, yeah, you know, I think that's where meditation comes in as a helpful thing. It gives you a little bit of extra space in that response time. You can sort of slow down and focus on your breathing while the other person's talking. You know, the, the deep breath thing that we did at the beginning of this chat was brilliant. Like I was all frazzled because my mic's busted. You know, like that just centered me, brought me right back. Ben, I see you ben, thinking. Any thoughts? Yeah. yeah, it just it's it's hard if you're in a conversation where there's mutual trust or respect. You should be able to see when somebody needs to halt, right? For a moment, even just to regain composure, right? That's not always the case, right? I, I have a teenager who, when I try, well, if we get in a, an argument and uh, I try to back out because I, I need I need to calm down for a minute, they won't let me, right? <laughs> they don't get it. And I'm trying to teach them like, no, you got to read people. You cannot hold people hostage in an argument. You got to, like, not if you want to resolve it, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that, and that's almost exactly the scenario I had in my head. Not necessarily a teenager. I don't have a teenager. But that moment when somebody's like, no, but I need this right now from you. And like, you can't leave this. I'm not, even if it's like, hey, I just need a second. Like, let me think about it. And they're like, no, I need it now. It gets really, that's, I guess that's the external version. Because I also feel what you're saying fits in the moments where I, I'm not all the way checked in to the fact that I'm all the way activated. Like I've jumped into go mode. It speaks volumes to like just the culture of production that we've been in for, you know, a hundred, 150 years, right? Like this increased need to do now always in our Parasymp are always in our sympathetic nervous system. We're always activated. So then we're in a conversation and we are so trained. I was thinking about this relative to a, a colleague of ours the other day who's trying to help Rodney balance all of the things that he's doing. And he sent him a text and he goes, I'm just sitting at the beach right now, just thinking about ways that I can help you. And my immediate response is, what do you mean sitting, right? Like just thinking, what is that? And we don't do that enough. So then we're in these <laughs> moments of connection where a halt makes sense. And we're like, no, now, now, now. Even though if we waited a day, the, the world will not end. Your world, like, as long as we leave it saying, I love you just in case, right? <laughs> like, if it's something that matters with somebody. But yeah, I love it. I, I think it's, I, I love when I hear people say that because it is such an undervalued I don't even want to say tactic, but approach to managing relationships. Like you get so in that space of I need to be right now. I'm going to take a break. I'm not, and, and I'm not going to take that break, but I should halt hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's a really good guideline. I'm thinking of a life hack similar to this about prioritizing your, your to-do list at work, right? Um, Fitz knows what I'm going to talk about, but the, I, you know, Fitz and I have, we've been through a million different systems. We're like, how do you, how do you prioritize your work? What's your to-do list? So you do bullet journaling and all, all this other, and you know, I've come down to a system where my to-do list every day or every week, I just make two columns. One is urgent and the other is important, right? And you've probably, you've, you've probably heard this before. The four quadrants, just make it to the four it, quadrants. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and I, I teach this to other people too, but following through on that means not just doing the urgent. I mean, sometimes I'll be like, all right, for the next two hours, I'm going to do urgent stuff, right? But then I will, on my calendar, I will say, I'm going to put an hour here to do the important stuff that's not urgent. And you create that space right now. I'm just going to think about what's the right strategy for my team for the next three months, right? Like, like, cause you won't do that if you don't schedule time for it. Right. And most people don't do that. Right. But that to me, that's, that's like sitting on the beach <laughs> thinking about it's important. Yeah. It's not urgent, but sure is important. Yeah. Building the <laughs> sure vision. Is. Well, right. and Keith, you just said it's undervalued. I don't think it's undervalued. I think if you ask 10 people, nine of them would say taking a break is a good idea when Fair. I'm. Yeah. I think that's the hijack. That's what's taken away from most of us, right. for me when specifically. We're, when we're active, when we are not. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's what the terror, the psychological terrorists take. Question Have either of you read Fine Time? No, no. It's written by the Google engineers who made the Gmail app. And he essentially, is this another guest recommended it to me. And basically he had a moment where he was building something with his daughter and he checked his phone to see if he got an email. 
and there was nothing. It was like that ghost vibration or that ghost notification. He was just like expecting that he should have an email. And he got, he was like, what am I doing? And he threw his phone across the room. He ended up deleting the app that he made and like all the apps from his phone that had notifications for like a month or two months. And he said it changed his life. And he's like, I made the app and I designed it to keep you in it. Like, I want you to be in the app and using the app. (laughs) And so it talks about like understanding the notifications, things that are pulling us. And it was a really good book for me. I don't allow any notifications on my phone except SMS and phone calls. That's it. I turn off every, and every people look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, what do you mean? How do you live? How do you live? Don't you want to get a vibration on every Facebook update and every email? I'm like, no, it would vibrate constantly. It's like, it's (laughs) like if you're ever in a group text and it's just rapid fire and you want to take your phone and burn it. That would be like that all the time. Like that would be all the time. Well, because like too much noise means nothing. Like it's, it means there's no notification if there's one every second. Yeah, I, I go back and forth. Like after I read the book, I turned them all off. And then yeah. like I started playing with turning some on. It's like, I like this one. I don't like Couple, this one. Yeah. I love I, But I, I love that like people listening to this right now were like, he does what? No. It doesn't seem like, that strange and, to me, but I, I think I'm in minority. for who? <laughs> oh, totally. No, 100%. Uh, no, people would absolutely freak out about turning off notifications. I had a conversation with it, about it the other day. Somebody was like, he doesn't have his notifications. I spent half my life without notifications. I'm, I was okay. I, I'm still okay. Going back, Look how going much was home, accomplished before getting, the iPhone. Getting excited that there might be a voice, you know, that voicemail blinking light on the landline at home. Like, you know, there's something to be excited about, you know, and that's when you pull in the driveway. It's like, I wonder. I wonder if anybody got me some mail today. When was the last time you thought, I wonder when I if I got mail today? I mean... Even with the notifications off, right? There's still the addiction, right? Like, I'll be sitting, thinking, daydreaming of self. Hmm, I'm bored. Let me let me check everything that would notify me, right? Yeah, this, the addiction still there. It doesn't there. cure yeah. the oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they're designed that way. And you have all your notifications off too, Fitz. Same as Ben, SMS and phone. And but I years ago when I was on on call, the the tone for my text message just would freak me out like it would just send like a shiver up my spine every time it went off regardless of who it was and i tried different tones i'm like oh i'll try this little zen like bowl tone you know you know after a month and a half that would set me off like you know, and basically i realized that any sound could freak me out so i i finally switched to keep my phone vibrate and i haven't had you know audible notifications on my phone in probably five. oh so it was actually the sound it wasn't the fact that you were potentially being called to go do a thing the sound was very it, the vibration I'm not, not super keen on, but it's it's generally fairly low, and it, especially the ones in my pocket. Sometimes I won't even feel it or, or notice it if I'm like you know walking around or something like that. And I like you can do vibration patterns now. That's not I like different for different well, people. I or different. Yeah, I, I'm the same way on that. Fits like I've t- I barely I, I only turn on sound if I it's an emergency situation and I'm not going to have my phone on me. Otherwise. I'll turn it on and I'll forget to turn it off and that sound just starts happening or we're recording and I record on a Mac. And so I've got the text messages that I can't seem to understand because I don't use a Mac, how to stop them from coming in. And that noise is in my ear while we're talking and I just want to burn my entire desk. Like that's that noise every time. But hey, let's take a pivot. Listen, you, you said it here 
white dudes don't know to shut the hell up at, at the conference. And you are two middle-aged men who care about organizational culture, diversity, and building teams of equity and inclusion, which in the today's day and age, you don't see a lot of middle-aged white men leading a charge, especially in a big tech company, right? Most of that is due to what we could call fragility. It's like, I don't want to do it, you know, all of that stuff. But it matters because, you know, white men are still the biggest population within technology and they need to hear it from people who look like them because that's just the way our brains work. What is it that has first gotten you interested in it and just confident and comfortable to 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 lead the charge and do it? I don't know if we're comfortable. Mm. <laughs> it's a moral imperative. Good answer. <laughs> it's not comfortable. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, it's a moral imperative because it's not anyone's job but the dominant group to fix it, right? It's not the underrepresented person's problem to fix. That, but it always falls into them anyway. They're the ones that wind up being, you know, left to speak up in a meeting or point something out or something like that. And I think we've both got a lot of friends who we've seen playing in that role, and they're just fucking exhausted. <laughs> they're just tired of it, and they would rather. They would rather see other people help out, but it's not like they came to us and said, Hey, we want you to do this. It was just, I think it just came from us being present and listening and, and hearing what these people were saying that they were having a different experience than we were. You know, when, when I was a, a younger engineer, I certainly did a whole bunch of dumb stuff. I assumed that the mode that I played the game on was the mode that everyone played the game on. I assumed that I had it nice and easy. I got to become a software engineer without a degree. Well, why everyone could do that when I, I look back and look at the string of things that had to happen for that to happen for that for me to get where I am uh, without that degree because I was playing on easy mode. And so, from from my perspective, I think that's like a, a tenet of feminism. It's like making making the world a better place for everyone. It's not necessarily one particular person or group. It's it's equal so that everyone has the same opportunities or or, or doesn't have to fight all this crap to like just get from point A to point B every day. How about for you, Ben? Yeah, I mean, s similar story, right? I've played my life in easy mode, but it isn't until you get older and get into positions of power that you have the vantage point to see that privilege. And at the same time that you finally can see that, because you see those behind you not having the privilege, at the same time, you are also more in a position of power from anyone else to change that, right? So that's why I say there's, there's a moral obligation as well right? Is how do you fix it? That's just basic, you know, humanism. <laughs> and, and I still, I still screw up. I still screw up all the time. Like I make mistakes. I say the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing. I miss something quite obvious, but the superpower that I have now is a group of friends who know me and trust me, who will not hesitate to call me out on that. And when that happens, I don't dig in and be like, screw you, you know, like, I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. I'm successful, blah, blah, blah. I stop. I'm like, hold on a second. It comes back to that humility, respect, and trust that Ben and I talk about a lot in my book. We talk about a lot day to day. But those are the three fundamental pillars that, from my perspective, all interpersonal conflict comes from. And so having that humility and the respect for someone else and the trust that they have, have my best interests at heart. Is what helps me to continue to improving. It's a journey. It's not a destination. We're not done. 
I'm not like finished on this or any, many, by any. Oh yeah. And you've been on it for a while. And I'm curious this last year and like COVID George Floyd happens uh, in almost the middle of this, the first round of the pandemic for me, black dude in corporate America, like I see some, I'm not going to say, I, I, I could say shifts or conversations that I would have never expected to have in a workspace. And that's a lot, I would say like 90% fallen off since then or so. I'd probably say just from observations, maybe 95% fallen off. Yeah, maybe I'm being generous. But even in that, like I, I, there was progress for sure. But I'm curious like, what did you see in this period? So you've cared about culture, you've cared about teams, you've cared about communication, you've cared about equity, seeing people that have it harder. Have you made any observations of the period that, we've, that we're coming through, still going through? I mean, I'll jump in. The first, the first one I saw, is like, gosh, like some people, just flexibility and empathy, like is. Just, you just got to go pick it up from Costco in the bucket load, you know, like I, I had, I had someone I worked with who was just, you know, in, in a meeting and, and they were apologizing because, you know, their kid farmed in the room and I'm like, pandemic time, like it doesn't matter. And then they apologize. They didn't get back for two hours or something else. Cause they had to deal with getting the kid through zoom school. And I'm like, look, I get it. Like if you need to take time off in the middle of the day to handle life, which is happening around you right now and come back to do your work when you have a minute later or if you need a, a time for yourself or whatever or not like i understand that like it, it's just understanding that working with somebody or, or working a job isn't this nine to five necessarily thing anymore it's like you're generally on things are demanding your time all the time but in that same note if people are going to set boundaries and that kind of thing some of those boundaries mean that you have to deal with stuff as it comes up especially when you have kids in the house or pets or whatever or not that kind of thing i don't know ben you you've got you had three kids in the house running around for the last year, you know? I mean, at, at Google, they they set up some really nice structure to make it possible to accommodate people in a crisis, right? Where they basically said, look, if you, if you need to work fewer hours because your kids are at home or you're caring for someone who's sick or whatever, right? They The policy was basically like, hey, managers, be accommodating, right? Like that was basically the policy, right? And, and it was very flexible and very awesome. The trick was partially getting managers to be more empathetic, right? But then also what I found was a lot of, like what Fitz is saying, there's a lot of people who were almost embarrassed to ask for help, right? Or to admit that there was they were in a situation that required accommodation, right? It was like a point of pride. And then now you've got to teach managers to be like, no, it's okay. <laughs> like you don't, we don't, we're not expecting full productivity from you, you know, or whatever, right. Or like giving people permission, right. Cause they're, they're embarrassed or, or something. I'm not sure. Or afraid. Embarrassed or personally, I would say just would feel like there's not even room for me to add another potential question mark. Like I'm already the black dude on the team or I'm already the black dude. And I'm like one of five in the org. So if it looks like I'm slacking, like people already think like he, he's probably lazy. So I'm like, I don't really want to ask for extra space, but I need it. That is real. That's really but how real. do you, how do you recognize that if they're not saying it? Right. That's right. That's a, that's right. And then, and, and, and then it becomes this, this decaying loop because 
I, you know, my boss, <laughs> and then when I talked to my boss about it, he's like, yeah, you guys, you got to let me know. Like, then I can, I can block, I can tackle, I can help you, but I can't if I don't know. But then I think that the linchpin is trust right there. And, and that's something that I, a manager has to earn over and over and over again. And, and this is one thing I learned that and most managers will say something like that. Many of them don't mean it. And people are used to that. They're used to being trapped. They're used to being tricked. They're used to being deceived. And so, you know, when, when I was at Google, we had an engineer join us from Motorola. Ben remembers this person. And like on their second day, they're like, I, I have, I'm so sorry. I have an appointment at 445. I have to leave at 445 and like, I'll, I'll make it up. I'll get here early tomorrow. And <laughs> it was, was like his like, first week at the job, right? Or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't really care when you're at your desk. You know the work you have to get done. The team knows the work that you have to get done. You know, just focus on the work. It doesn't matter if you come in at eight, nine, ten, or eleven. You know, you're there when people need you. And and I, I he worked for me like five years before I left Google. And I maybe around year four was when he started to I think believe me in some of those things because he saw nothing. <laughs> You know, no, it's, it's, it's really hard. People come from toxic yeah. environments. Yeah. It's really a note about this world of like, we're focusing on the wrong shit. Like, who cares if Danny's getting a haircut in the middle of the day? He's up until like 12 doing work. Like, it's, I, I had the same thing when I started at Microsoft. I was the day before, Sunday night. I remember this. I was like, turned to my wife. I said, Rach, I don't know when I'm supposed to be at work tomorrow. Like, that never came up in like the pre hire. I don't know when to show up. And so I texted my boss. I'm like, what? Like, am, is it nine to five, eight thirty? Like, when am I supposed to be there? He's like, he's like, I live in Seattle. You live in LA. What's, <laughs> what's the traffic like? Like, what do you have to do? Do you have to drop your kids off? Like, do you have a breakfast thing with your wife? Like, this is a get the job. He's like, you'll see people log out around one thirty because they got to go get their kids, and then some might log back in before dinner, or they'll log in after the kids go to bed. Like whatever. It's not really about when you clock in and clock out, but I'm just so used to being micromanaged to the point. It's like, if you're not, if you're at your desk, that's the only time you're actually working because I can see you here. It's a, it's such an example of the importance of culture, but even that added point that you put fits managers have to earn the trust over Like the culture eventually forms itself such that, but it takes a long time and it takes a lot of buy-in in order for people to come in and feel like, oh, this is okay behavior. It's that example of, you know, okay, we have this these programs, cool. But what if I take advantage of that program, right? Well, you do that one time, then the next time these programs come up and you want to take advantage of them because the company says it's okay, but the culture doesn't. And the culture then then organizations are like, why aren't people taking advantage of these things? It's because you got a bunch of bad managers or a bunch of people aren't fostering the, the culture that we wanted to decide. Yeah. Flip side, some managers do mean it, but the culture also doesn't allow it. Like, correct. Yeah. Just because your manager's like, oh, it's cool, but you can see who's getting promoted or you can see who's making it to high levels. That'll tell you whether or not it's actually acceptable. In some cases, yeah, and and I used to walk around talking. Ben and I used to get we used to give a talk. We tell people like, if you're really not happy, you know, find a way to leave your job. And we had we had one question at the end really confront us on that. Like, you know, I can't leave my job. Like, I can't just pick up and go. Like, I have a family. You know, I've got 
to provide and that sort of thing. And that helped us, I think, to refine that, to, to start actively looking for a job if you're in a place where you can't make the change you need to and you're unhappy. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of privilege to being able to step away or to be able to take that risk. And I was really lucky. Like at Google, like I used to work on, I'd say, you know, do the right thing and wait to get fired. And that was, Ben will confirm, like I did a lot of pretty out there stuff um, at Google and I managed to not get fired. But um, it was what I thought was the right thing. But I knew that I had the, I had the cushion if I, if I got fired. I mean, that right there, like you catching, because I was, I was just about to ask you about the privilege in that. And I'm like, but, but you, you were making that note and, and adjusting to it in your talks. That's you. That's learning. Yes. Growing, right? Growth mindset. That's how you combat fragility is with growth mindset. Okay. We're going to pause it right there. We're going to come back at this in just a little bit of time. Have a great rest of your day, evening, weekend, week, whatever it is. Have a great one.